From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom. We've been coming to you via Zoom for the last two and a half years. This is Cade Massey joined by the whole crew. We've got the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We're going to be together. Some combination of us are going to be together for the next two hours talking sports analytics. We have a couple of open segments on the top of the show, and then we'll roll into an interview with Ryan O'Hanlon. Unexpectedly full hour interview with Ryan O'Hanlon. A lot of fun. The author of a new book called Net Gain Soccer Analytics. You only think you don't want to talk about soccer analytics. It's great to get caught up on what's going in the world of soccer, especially on the eve of the World Cup. We have a month of fantastic soccer viewing ahead of us, and the conversation with Ryan made uh, at least me and Adi, who were in here for it, a little a little more knowledgeable as we rolled into that. Gentlemen, it's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording in our usual time slot. This thing will go up tomorrow morning on SiriusXM. It'll be replayed a few times over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday. We've got a few things floating around. The college football playoff rankings will come out tonight, so we're going to miss that. Not a lot of drama on that this week. Uh, we're a little bit past baseball. I'm curious if that's still is – it, is it working in you at all? We're, football has been a, a – you know – Professional football is not quite to the home stretch, but we're getting there. Basketball's warming up, hockey's warming up. Of all those things, or something else, what is election? I think we got to just cut a quick comment on elections. Polls Good. worked. I don't have much to say other than they were pretty accurate. Well, I think there's a lot more to say about it because we we one of the last moments we. I mean, I think there's there is an answer to this, but let me just pose it critically to us. We talked about correlations. And on our on our segment last week, and we pointed to the 2016 election where we all should have learned when those Florida election results came in that it bode well for the Republican Party for the rest of the country because they're because they're, they're the, the states aren't uncorrelated. There's this correlation. And it feels to me like, well, here we go. Florida elections, their returns are coming in before anybody else. DeSantis is, you know, crushing everything down there. But yet it didn't go in the same way from there that it had in 2016. And one of, I think, the real lessons, or I don't know if it's a lesson, but the observation about this midterm was that the correlations were weaker. They were, there was more local in some sense. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I mean, I think DeSantis, certainly DeSantis in Florida, was I think an outlier to what I'm I'm about to say, but I think you know watching kind of this slow like week long sort of house like you, you know the house race basically like you know kind of stumbling to its conclusion. If anything is enforced a little bit, the that 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 correlation is still there. I just think it's to the Democrats in this particular election. You know we, you know I I think you know there was about I don't know after election night there was maybe like about forty house seats outstanding and you know that all, all the pundits were saying well the democrats essentially have to win two-thirds of these in order to retain like the house and if you again believed in a model of no correlation you'd be like there's no chance because i mean every single one of these because they're still outstanding after election night should be kind of you know viewed independent you know if you want to view them independently they're each yeah, like so, a 50 yeah. 50 coin flip yeah, good and let so me you try and get like so many but 
you know, the Democrats have been winning more of those outstanding yeah, seats because this, I think they're you, correlated. There, I think you're actually right, and it's a good point. They are correlated. But speaking of correlation, one of our re- listeners uh, sent me a note and reminded us that it was not 538. It wasn't Nate Silver who who doesn't understand who made the mistake in 26. It was actually Sam Wong and a lot of other people who didn't take into account in their models the correlation. Uh, Nate mm-hmm. Silver absolutely did, and mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why he had a much lower probability of Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. in 2016. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, Shane's right. I think Democrats overperformed kind of everywhere, except in Florida and a couple of places. And people are, of course, spinning narratives about why, and I'll leave that to the narrative writers rather than us. Well, I'll, 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 offer you an, I'll offer you an, a narrative. Uh, Eric, let me hold you off for a real quick second. I'm taking this from the Daily's interview with Nate Cohn, I think it was Thursday. So this was two days after the election. And Nate Cohn is, of course, the analyst for the New York Times. And his narrative, and we'll see how, how well it holds up over time, is that you first you've got this base rate that the that the party in power loses seats. And so you've got kind of a tide against the Dems in that respect. Um, but then any place his his position was any place that either abortion or quote democracy was on the ballot that the dims did better and by democracy on the ballot he means basically a trump candidate someone who's an election denier that that animated the democratic base or it led some republicans to switch or party or ticket split enough that they did really well but if those things weren't on the ballot that you've got this kind of typical base rate running against the power and the party in power. So for example, New York, he gives New York state as an example, which lost a number of congressional seats from Republicans to Dems. I mean, from Dems to Republicans because there were no abortion referendums and there were no candidates threatening, you know, to do extreme things. Eric. A comment that, you know, we always forget there's two ways. If you think about two outcomes, let's say two different States or even look across all the States, there's at least two things that could generate a correlation between them. One might be observable characteristics. So, for example, there's an abortion referendum in these two states. There's, uh, you know, election deniers in these two states. And then, of course, there's correlated unobservables in these two states. I think it's the, the first one that, and this is what you're just talking about, Kate, that people forget about, is that when I build statistical models, The first thing I try to do, if I think that multiple outcomes are dependent or correlated with each other, is I try to put it in the observable batch. Like, why not try to explain that source of variation? And so I think it's not just after the fact. I think before the fact, if you had tried to say which states are likely to be correlated, you could come up with an observable explanation for it. Mm -hmm. And then also there's kind of, you know, the covariance matrix, the unobservable part. I think there's also likely to be a dependence there. And I think in 2016, or sorry, 2020, it was mostly, or sorry, 2016, I guess, the first Trump election, it was correlated unobservables. Nobody Mm -hmm. forecasted that it would happen. Now, as you're pointing out, there are things we knew about various states, and you put those in the mean function, which creates a dependence as opposed to just leaving it in the covariance matrix. Okay, interesting. That's a That seems like a good distinction. Adi. Audie, you're, you're muted. I just want to reflect on one thing that's um, always always of importance. Every every election had a prediction interval on the final percentage. Um, my sense is most of those prediction intervals covered the right covered the final value um, right. at the end of the day, and that did not happen in past elections. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's that's not something we should go past too quickly because in recent elections we were starting to sing the death knell of. Um, 
polls. Like we can't right. get to people anymore. In fact, we talked about it last week. It's like you just can't, right. you can't get these guys to answer their phone or whatever, but they, they're apparently doing something right because the polls this time around, at, at least unless by chance, the polls this time around perform pretty well. That's right. And, and just they just the margins and were right. I mean, I, I was tracking, as we all know, uh, the New York City governor election. Um, um, they were predicting Hochul win by four to five points. I thought that was awfully close for a state that's two to one Democrats. Um, and it ended up four to five points. Um, and it was uh, just and that's that seemed to be replicating itself all over. I was expecting a lot of people were expecting prediction intervals to blow it as they'd done in the past. Um, that just didn't come down. So let me let me give you an alternative uh, forecasting issue to discuss, and that is that a few weeks ago we took some we took a question from a from a listener about how seemingly too high the bills were to win the Super Bowl. It was like twenty seven, twenty eight percent, and we and we 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 read that question and we ran the numbers and we said, well, it actually looks like that's an utterly reasonable number according to how people are rating these guys and everybody else. You run the sim. It wasn't a high number, but it wasn't crazy. Well, I'm here to report to you that the same power rankings and the same sim. So this is Massey Peabody run through unabated. And I'm going to guess 538 is going to agree with us as the bills down to 18%. So what happened here? And most importantly, did you watch that crazy Bills Vikings game on Sunday? 12%, by the way. 12, if 538 yeah, it has a I was going to say 18% 12, sounds 12, too 12, high to me. 12%. 12%. 12%. Wow. Okay. We got it. We got them yep. 50% higher than 538. That's a big swing on 538. Um, um, that was a long way of getting to my God. Did you see that game on Sunday? Yeah. Incredible. Incredible game. I thought it was, yeah, absolutely. I, I, one I will of the best games and, I've ever seen. Yeah. I'll go down and say that. Um, obviously, there have been I, I, in my memory, there's at least two catches under pressure that were greater just because of the pressure situation. Obviously, the David Tyree catch that was also like fourth and 20. Um, obviously, the Santonio Holmes catch to win the Super Bowl where he just got his feet. And this is the uh, Steelers Rams Super Bowl. But that forget anything else. That catch by Justin Jefferson is yeah. the greatest catch I've ever seen. I've never seen a better <laughs> catch. I've never seen a better catch than that. Yeah. And then. You know, there's so many things in that game that have you ever up. seen a worse quarterback sneak than Josh Allen uh, performed? Uh, no, I was that well. You were like an old married couple. You read my mind. That was what I was going to talk about next. That um, I think the win probability for the Bills at that point had to be oh 97, 98 percent. Because by the way, the time wasn't going to run out, so they potentially could have had to punt, and then you know they would have possibly gotten the ball back, but. Still, they were also down by four points. They needed a touchdown there to take the lead. That was crazy. That was I, I'd never seen anything like that. We're talking about we're talking about a team with, who, who stops the other side on the one or half or whatever it was. They've got the ball up four points. Forty four seconds left in the game. I mean, this is exactly one thing supposed to happen here. You know what it reminded me of? Y'all are the exact right crowd to ask this. Wasn't there a play when we were children where like the Giants? handed the ball off in the end zone in a similar situation and fumbled and lost the correct. game. That's correct. Yes. And it was one of these things like, well, the original was, miracle at the Meadowlands was like supposed to be essentially like almost a kneel down, but then right when they, Herm Edwards scored, is that the one we're talking about? I, I don't know who the players were, but it's, it's yeah. always in my mind when people talk about, you know, the, the, these, these impossibly low probability events, and they still happen sometimes. And here comes. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of people drawing connections. I mean, it's talk about like a, a fun memory to like the end of the Seattle New England Super Bowl when 
you know, obviously New England, they turned the ball over right at like the one yard line, essentially, and had a similar situation where the only hope that Seattle had was somehow that New England didn't get the ball out of the end zone on like a quarterback sneak. Seattle ended up going off sides in order to kind of make it less of a, you know, tenuous uh, play yeah, at the yeah, end yeah. there. So here's but, what I haven't. So what I haven't seen in that um, in the Bills game, maybe you guys saw an analysis of this. I had a discussion with my son, my youngest son, who I was watching the game with at the time. Is there any way they take a safety there? No, I Let's, mean, in retrospect, it would have been a better move. I mean, we 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 think of no, the safety as no. somewhat. Well, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to say no also because a safety would have made it so they I think would have a lost field the field goal. Yeah, yeah. and they're going to get the ball with 40 seconds, and I mean, look what the Bills did. I mean, no, 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 no. But I mean, it, I, right? I mean, but what actually happened is more disastrous even than taking the safety. Like a safety would have been a bad, but still. No, I think you it's know, a bad. I think it's a bad, a bad strategy. I mean, look at what look at what happens. Even what's what played out. I mean, it's stunning. You look you look at those game that game, and they're sitting there forty four seconds with the possession up by four, and yet we're about to see two more field goals. Like before the game's yeah. over, we're going to see both teams kick. Yeah, field right. Goals. No, no, well, no, no, no. Well, a touchdown, no, a touchdown, a touchdown, and a field goal. Um, and then two field goals. There was one to win it in overtime. Well, there was okay. a touchdown yeah, and two yeah, field. Yeah. Not, not in that 44 seconds. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what I meant to say was two teams score in the next yeah. 44 seconds. It's just unimaginable. What What is the right way to uh, objectively measure whatever quality it is that we're reacting to in a game? If we want to say this is the most extraordinary game, is there so – I of- asked, So I asked about that. I put that in our rundown. I mean, one possibility – this is just, it's kind of, a, I asked actually in our rundown, I put a bunch of metric questions. So one metric question is maybe it's something like the total change in win probability. Per time, per unit time. Yeah, yeah. That's a metric that would call, uh, we would talk about the surprisingness of a game or the, um, you know, how much. It's a, it's know, a, I mean, I agree, I agree that's one possible way of measuring surprise, but like say, take, for example, New England coming back on Atlanta in the Super Bowl. That, in terms of the change, like that's like a, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- there's a big change in probability, but it kind of happened. Like it's not yeah, like yeah. a back and okay. forth kind of change. No, you like can a, do it. Like, a, like an, an epic comeback. At log scale. Or... It's not, not captured by kind of. No, no, like no. The, the way you handle that, you got to exp- exponentiate it. You can't treat a, a 90 win uh, percent, you know, moving from 90 to 10 is not the same as 99.99 to anything other than that. I mean, you have to look at it as, at as orders of magnitude. And if you do that, but, you'll get that. Sure, in. But I, that, I'm more that, talking about like this kind of like the directionality of these chains, like, you know, Eric, well, these are two different, kind of these are two different in terms of these are, uh, volatility back and forth. Are, these are two of, of different, yeah, yeah. different attributes. I think yeah, these exactly. are two different yeah. attributes. You, you, two you, different yeah. types of two different types of comebacks or when they're answering different yeah. questions in some. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, I think that uh, for me, kind of the quality of a game, it would be hard to capture that in one omnibus measure, like a single yeah. measure. Yeah, because yeah, I yeah. think there are different aspects to it. I mean, you know, this game also Minnesota Buffalo. It wasn't just like you know there was epic plays in it, like that Justin Jefferson catch or the Stephon Diggs catch. I mean, it was kind of, or you know that the crazy fumble. You know, I, I think you almost have to kind of like you'd have to have a pretty multi-dimensional, multi-faceted kind of. I don't know, signature for what quality meant, because I think there's a lot of different dimensions in play here. Just to be just to be clear, um, this is I 
Let me ask you, Kate, about Massey Peabody. Let's imagine Josh Allen doesn't fumble the ball. Okay. Let's imagine the Bills then hold on to win the game. We just talked about, for example, 538's win probability is 12%. What would it be if instead the Bills had won that game? Now, just one play different, one play different in that game. Is that 12% still 18%, 20%? Like, did that one play in some sense change, though, Super Bowl win probability by 10%? Doesn't it change their probability of getting a bye or anything like that? It, sure, it, it does, surely but did. again, I think 20% on one team is too high, even fat. No, 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 I'm yet. saying conditional on what it was. Yeah. I'm asking if if the yeah. games, if instead of the Bills being 6-3 and three and third place in their division, but instead they're 7-2, and two, first place in their division, now, as Adi said, they're more likely, first of all, to win the division, get home field, all these things. I'm just saying you could argue that one play may have shifted at least 5% the Super well, first, Bowl win well, first, probability. Well, first, yeah, sure. first, what's the, what's, what's the buy worth? The buy, the buy is worth a, a big chunk, right? Because that buys you one less game. game. Off. One less Lose, game. Losing the buy costs you half of whatever your probability is. Yeah, so, I mean, that, so, the, so it's like what's the probability that that loss cost you the buy? And it's, See, they it's, have almost no chance of getting the buy. Not no. Yeah, I mean, they were That's already. Not, I don't agree with that. Low fifty percent of getting the buy buy anyway. Even prior, even if they'd won. What is it? Or do we only have one team getting the buy now? Yeah. One. One. Okay. Okay. Well, so way, did I you, was just bringing up like how much, how much yeah. Super Bowl win probability did that one play actually cost the Buffalo Bills? And you could argue easily five percent, but maybe more. Yeah, somewhere, but yeah, so five, 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 up to ten, maybe. But it's you know, we there's a lot of football left. There's still, what, yeah, what I, I mean, six, I, you six, know, six I, weeks, I, seven I weeks. Wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, uh, again, yeah, you know, I, in, in my mind, the AFC, I just. The coin the AFC has a fifty percent chance to win the Super Bowl, and you know to put the Bills even at twenty percent somehow like now already already you're kind of giving them too much of that fifty percent pie in my opinion. So you know, I, well we you, ten- you, you, you we do have them. People have them significantly above everybody else. They're a little less so now. The last after the last couple of weeks, but they were sneaking up to like. No, three, yeah, and three I mean, and I four points I, better. I, I, I get, I get that. Like five thirty-eight uses Elo models, and those are bound to do that. I mean, those same Elo models had the Dodgers at like forty percent to win the World Series when the playoffs started. That's I just the think way, they too. they assign too much probability. Well, Shane, like, no, they don't. They don't respect shame. the coin flip nature of it. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is that if you're going to criticize where five thirty-eight was for them, Massey Peabody was in the same place. So power rankings and a proper mm-hmm. sim. We're giving you the same 27, 28% as of a couple of weeks ago before this. Yeah, just, just, just so you know, there's only one team in the AFC with less wins, sorry, less losses than the Bills, yeah. and that's the Chiefs with two. Yeah. Um, I guarantee you, not guarantee you, if the Bills go 14 and three, they've got a good chance of getting the bye. Um, mm-hmm. Their problem is that they haven't won a division game yet. They've lost to the Jets and to the Dolphins. That's part of their problem right now. Uh, and also, by the way, if you think about strength of the team, I mean, where do, where's the Bills on Massey Peabody? I mean, they still have the, the highest plus minus of any team yeah. in the NFL. Yeah. yeah, They've got to still be. This is interesting in terms of win. Prob- so this is interesting in terms of winning the Super Bowl. We've already discussed they could be five to 10 percent less. But I'm pretty sure if we look at Massey Peabody's continuous rankings or an ELO number, it actually didn't change that much. Yeah, we, we dropped them 
seven one hundredths of a point from eight point three eight to eight point three one. Well, you just said the win probabilities. That's that's the beauty of statistics because <laughs> the win that the, their strength doesn't really change that much. Your perception of their strength doesn't change that much, yeah, but their yeah. win probability dramatically yeah. changed. To me, you you just, just, have the come on, you're losing games. You have to pay for it. I just want to say, I'm sorry that the rest of the world didn't get the visual of Eric's Eric's excitement, the double fisted, closed eyes, the beauty of statistics. That was. <laughs> I wish I had that one recorded. I'm, I'm, Shane, you were going to ask a question. I think. Well, I was asking. I mean, I'm. I want to talk a little bit about the Eagles. I, I'd like go, to go, go, what yeah. They, what, yeah. What'd you do to the Eagles with their with their loss in their Massey Peabody? I don't even think. I, I mean, they probably got dropped. I, I mean, they probably didn't get dropped very much. Because, we got a full, a full point, a full point the, okay. from 4.75 I mean, to 3.82. Really, I, I mean, they're probably still going to get the buy. But I I mean, I, even before, la, you know, watching them last night, I want to actually just kind of list off, like, because everybody, you know, has taught themselves into the Eagles being this, like, dominant team. And they've looked good in a lot of games. But I just want to list off the quarterbacks they've beaten yeah. since yes. 2021. Notice I don't say you're not saying what teams because I know they have two good wins. They've beaten the Vikings and they've beaten the Cowboys, but keep going. You want to talk about the quarterbacks? Yeah, the quarterbacks they have played and beaten. Matt Ryan, Sam Darnold, Jared Goff twice, Teddy Bridgewater, Trevor Simeon, Zach Wilson, Mike Glennon, Taylor Heineke (laughs) twice, one loss to him, Kirk Cousins, Carson Wentz, Trevor Lawrence, Kyler Murray, Cooper Rush, Kenny Pickett, Davis Mills. That's, Davis that's... Mills? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I really when feel you put like... it that way. I mean, yeah, I watched the game yesterday. Way. I have to say, I, I, I could hear you screaming uh, robot umps after that game. And I know there's got to be an equivalent in, in the NFL, but, you know, that personal foul on a push in on an inbounds player that grabbing the face mask and yanking him down and causing a fungal and missing that. And then that little what it was that a little I mean, you have 300 pound lineman rushing in a guy and he takes a knee and he and he and he tilts over and it's like, a. I mean, what the fuck is that? I'm sorry to <laughs> my language, but I'm not I mean, I'm like, I can't believe it. And I was well, like, no, I mean, you're 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 you're, cha- you're channeling the inner Eagles. Fan and you. Man, of that course. Is I, was... my, that is, I mean, I mean, neither of those. I mean, the missed face back was unfortunate. Was unfortunate. Um, but the, I mean, the roughing. What the is that the rule? Was roughing the passer. I mean, yeah. No, but it's not, it's, you know. it's 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 because it's it's a rule that's like by the. I mean, there's no. Is there no leeway on by the uh, no, by the rest? There isn't. No. Well, no. there's leeway. It's their judgment call. It's 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 the entirety of leeways on the rest. You know, the rest have, you know, ultimate leeway. Well, well, here's, let me let me say what was possible. This is a little different than ball, baseball and balls and strikes on that. That it's like there's not like an objective truth. No, 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 no. no, no. Well, yes and no. So I heard a I heard a bunch of refs talking about it after the game. So what happened is. What do you mean you heard a bunch of refs talking about? Where is there's, this? There's ref Twitter, right? <laughs> there, was, there was. There was a discussion. Well, there was, you know, they have the, I forget the guy's name that's on the um, NFL oh, channel. Okay. That, okay. And so he was discussing it and he was saying, look, they have to throw the flag now because he got hit in the head and neck area. Now, could they have picked up the flag after discussion? I see. Yes. I see. Okay. But they, but as Shane said, there's no, there's no subjectivity. He was hit in the head and neck area. Doesn't matter whether he was after he gave a little himself bit, up after, after giving himself up. They, yeah, after giving himself up, they have to throw the flag. Now they could have chosen subjectively to say this is a three hundred pound guy. He's running out at full steam. He you know couldn't stop in time. 
They chose not to do that, but they had to throw the flag. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we, we have talked about the Eagles having not been super impressive so far. Y'all, someone referred to them. I was talking about Clemson a couple of weeks ago, and y'all were like the, Eagle, the Eagles of the NCAA because they, 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 they look good, good record, but we're not real sure about them. So we'll, we'll find out more. It's one of the things. I'm not even these, sure we will. I mean, maybe. Well, they're, they're not going to keep on playing, you know, either bad or backup quarterbacks for the rest of the season. It's one of the things that a sim nah, will do well, for okay. you. Well, okay. I mean, I they're, looked at but, their schedule. It's not. You know, even the, the schedule thing, to come up. It's, it's, one it's of, not something where I started. They have the week. They they have the like I think they, that's the right. Worst or you know the best strength of schedule or weakest strength of schedule. Even among teams that are still to face. Yeah. So we've got them. We've got the sim on those guys. Of course, we give them uh, the largest probability of making the super, of winning the Super Bowl out of the out of the NFC. Twelve point two. So you guys didn't like eighteen for Buffalo. You're not going to like twelve point two for. Philadelphia, but so it has to do with having a good record, but also a weak schedule. Yeah, and, and, relatively- tra- yeah, and also they do kind of unlike in the AFC. I think they have a little bit, even with the loss, a little bit of an easier path to that buy to the buy, and then they have weaker. I mean, the, the question is whether the Niners are gonna are gonna be as strong, mm-hmm. or the or the Cowboys strong. Is Green Bay and Tampa Bay, they the, are the Bays coming back. The Bays aren't coming back. I'm super super skeptical on that one. But um, what else around the NFL, guys, before we leave that? What about well, the- I mean, speaking of one of the big, I, I have to make it about the Patriots Bucks. I think it's a fun statistic that I want you guys to guess at. The pa- Bucks and Patriots are number one and number two in the NFL in what statistic? Bring up the fewest points per game. Bad quarterback play of some kind. It's related. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Give it to us, Shane. Field goals made. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, you should have said it was a positive stat. Oh yeah, I, I mean it's kind of positive. Superficially, it turns out field goals made. I mean, you need two things: you need a reliable field goal kicker. They both have those. Right. They both right. teams have that, but you also need to have a terrible red zone offense. Yeah, and both teams have that. Yeah. Or yeah. you know, the Bucks do look like they're kind of turning it around, perhaps. But um, yeah, it's 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 not. It's kind of a good. I mean, it is a positive stat, but I don't think it's the stat you want to. No, be I, I, I meant superficially positive. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. It's like a. It, All uh, I'll say is the following: as a Bucks fan, for for a year to be, let's call it mediocre plus, this is a pretty damn good year in the NFC because first of all, they're they're better than anybody in their division, so they're likely to win the division. Yeah. And then secondly, there's nobody in the NFC right now that scares me. In other words. I don't know. Maybe Massey Peabody has it differently. Who is the Vikings? Who's the top-rated NFC team, and how good are they? Like, if they were playing the Bucks right now on a neutral field, what's the point differential between the top-rated NFC team and the Bucks, and who is it? We have San Francisco and Dallas three and four in the NFL, and they're close to each other, like four and a half and four and a quarter. So let's call the those Bucks the are, top. And the Bucks are at what? Eight in the NFL at three point two. So neutral would be a point down to the Cowboys and a point and a quarter down to the Niners. My point is that I'm yeah. not saying the Bucs are a great team, but I mean, right. they yeah. they win the division yeah. and they've got yeah. as, by the way, they have a better chance of winning their division than the Cowboys do of winning their division. Yeah. And not, I mean, nobody has a better chance than the Vikings to winning their division with a five game lead or whatever they have. But there's no reason the Bucs can't go to the Super Bowl in the NFC. Sure. Yeah, no. And I mean, I, I personally, my, my kind of image of the NFL landscape is that the Chiefs, and Bills are teams that scare you. And then there's a gap. And then it's, you know, a collection of, you know, no, then the Ravens and a bunch of NFC I'm, I'm pulling for the Ravens to come out of their bye Dave, looking Dave, sharp. Dave, 
Cade mentioned this team as well. The one team in the NFC that I don't think I'd want to play right now is the 49ers. Mm-hmm. That's a good team. You know, that seems like a fairly complete team. And, you know, I, I, I'm that wouldn't surprise me if they win that mm-hmm. division, by the yeah. way, over Seattle. It would not surprise me if they win that division. And I don't see any reason why they can't do some damage. Guys, before we leave, I got to get your thinking on, we didn't talk about this last week. I wanted to talk about, we didn't talk about it. Uh, Jeff Saturday taking over as head coach of the Colts. He got his first win. Of course, the big news was him being chosen over guys on the staff who have head coaching experience. He's never been a head coach other than a few years as a high school head coach. Um, Any thoughts on this in general? And then of course, Ursay, the owner had this ridiculous quote whenever he, whenever he hired, he said, well, I, I think there's too much fear in the NFL. It's good that he doesn't have experience. There's too much fear among the guys with experience. That's why they use analytics. Extraordinary quote. But in general, what are your expectations for Saturday? Is, is it how important is that head coaching experience? Well, I, I, I think there's, you know, it depends what you want the role of the coach to be, which is there are some coaches that are, I'll call them motivational coaches that don't necessarily coach the X's and O's. They're not calling plays during the game. They're leaving that to their staff. Jeff Saturday was very clear and the reports were very clear. It's not like he was changing their schemes. It's not like he was calling plays during the game. They have an offensive coordinator. They have a defensive coordinator. He's none of those. They have a receivers coach, a special teams coach. He's letting them do their jobs. Now, if his job is to try to motivate his players or his job is to select Matt Ryan to start, uh, you know, instead of, I guess, Ellinger, right? Mm-hmm, Isn't that, mm-hmm, that's what he chose. Mm-hmm, All right. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did. He motivated his team, supposedly, and he chose Matt Ryan to start. That might have been the only thing he did in that game. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, what we're going to find out about is how important is it? And maybe Shane has some thoughts about this, given you have in some ways the greatest motivational coach and the greatest XO coach, which is both Bill Belichick. Maybe you don't need to be a great X and O coach. And maybe the fact that Jeff Saturday doesn't have, maybe he has the X and O's or maybe he doesn't, but maybe that's not important. I mean, somebody's got to have the X and O's on the staff. <laughs> I just and said I, he doesn't. You know, I just said so, does he have to have it. Well, but it, I, that is if you're trying to win. And the thing is, I can't even appraise this. It's a weird, I mean, obviously it's a weird hire. You know, uh, it's unconventional, but I don't even know what the organization's motives are here. Cause I mean, it's an interim coach. Like, so, you know, they, they don't have any, obli- it's not like they're logged in, locked into this person beyond the next 10 games. And when I first heard about him, like my reaction was li- less like, Oh my goodness, the disregard to all the great coaches out there. I mean, <laughs> you know, like half the teams have terrible coaches that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's like an infinite okay. supply of amazing coaches that got turned down. Well, you're saying, but you're also saying they might be in the Bryce Young sweepstakes. And so yeah. Case- I mean, like if you want to tank, this would be a way to, you know, and, I don't see any downsides for the Colts, okay. right? If, cause if he, if he sucks as a coach, they will okay. be even That's worse than they already is. And they'd be in contention. Let's give a 30 second day. counter argument. Let me give a counter argument. By the way, I, I do think they should have given other coaches an opportunity, but ignoring that part, here's an argument. They believe they have a good offensive coordinator, a good defensive coordinator. If they promote one of them to head coach, then they're missing one of the two key positions. So put in some figurehead that can motivate. Let the offensive and defensive coordinators do their jobs. 
Now you're adding on top. I'm just asking, I'm looking at Cade when I'm saying this, because this is an organizational question. You, yeah. Let's imagine you believe you already have two good assistant coaches in place that can run the offense yeah. and defense. You yeah. bring in a motivator who adds yeah. on top. Now maybe you get something. Okay. I think that that's a good argument at least. I, and I, I'm sympathetic because we, I think we underestimate how many different dimensions there are to being a very good coach, especially a high level football coach. It strikes me that these are just impossibly um, complicated jobs and that it, to find the person who's good at all of the things required to be good is just so rare. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, I didn't mean to kind of be overly dismissive, you know, because I said there's a lot of bad coaches out there. I, I mean, I think it's because it's an incredibly hard position to do well. And we see that because we see, you know, even, you know, how many times have we seen coordinators who are clearly very good at being right. offensive yeah, defensive yeah. corners so, elevated and they just you know as eric was saying they it, it, it's enough of a different skill set that you know being a successful coordinator i mean what where else are you going to pull from i guess yeah, but being yeah. a successful coordinator isn't gar- any guarantee of, of being a good head coach yeah so i i mean heck we should like it as social scientists we should like it because they're basically running an experiment it's like okay what what if we just load up on a couple of these other attributes that people aren't usually worrying about like leader of man and organizational yes. skills and let's let's just Breaking load up on those the two. owner yeah okay yeah, that's what that's, I, well, that's why that's what i said in the, in the rundown <laughs> maybe we're going to learn something in some bizarro way about the skills that are actually needed yeah. for the head coach if you have people in certain positions like what's the optimal team structure yeah. amongst let's call it the so top look, three look, people on the run, team run the experiment because we're forever uh, we're forever hiring the guys who are really good x and o guys we run that experiment we don't know how they're going to be as leaders or organizers but we know they're good at that let's flip it around and run the other one okay all of a sudden i like this hire all right guys why don't we leave it there for q1 let's grab a break come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the second quarter now, an open segment. We're going to pick up a few sports from around the world. Eric Bradlow's in here. Shane Jensen is in here. This is Cade Massey, Otterwinder, stepping away for this quarter. You guys can jump in and away. We wish you would. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We follow our guests. We love your recommendations, suggestions, complaints, whatever you got. You can also drop us emails. We run a mailbag through our email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Love to hear from you. We read everything you send us. We get as much of it as we can on the air. All right, gentlemen, Eric, Shane, uh, 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 we've talked about NFL. We could talk about some other sports. I think college football, let's just do a real quick rundown on that, see if you guys have any questions. Let's just kind of kind of get our bearings as we roll in. We've got two regular season weeks ahead of us before the conference championships. Uh, the, all the kind of leading teams won last weekend. A lot of folks thought that TCU, a top four undefeated team, would lose to Texas. They were seven-point underdogs on the road. They did not lose to Texas. They remain undefeated. They've only got to win three more, and TCU will make the playoff, presumably. Um, those games are the first two are quite winnable. They have Baylor. They're going to Baylor. TCU Baylor have a good little rivalry. Then I think they host Iowa State. They could easily win both those games. They'll 
They might see K-State. It's undetermined yet who they'll see in the in the Big 12 title. They clinched their spot. Probably K-State. K-State gave them a hell of a battle first time around. So they're no shoe-in, but they are they got past one of their bigger hurdles. And by the way, by doing that, they greatly reduced the chance that Texas would make the Big 12 championship as well. Eric's trying to jump in here. So my question is for the USC's of the world, for the Tennessee's of the world, for the maybe it's Utah's of the world. Does TCU have to lose for them to have a chance? Because what I'm assuming is, let's assume Georgia's in for a second. Let's assume the winner of the Big Ten is in. So now that's two teams that are guaranteed to be in. Um, You could make an argument that uh, USC is not getting in over a one-loss Tennessee. Um, Like, what has to happen for, let's say I was a USC fan. What has to happen if they run the table? They're playing UCLA this week, not an easy game. Let's say they win out, win the big Pac-12 championship. Are they in if TCU wins out or no? There's no chance. There's no chance. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to trump an undefeated Big 12 champion TCU. I think that's that's especially because no, no, they're already. Suppose there's a Big 12 champion, an oh. SEC champion. I see. I see. 10, I see. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is who's got the a, one loss team that's going to make it. That's my question. That's the, they would be squarely a conversation. And by the way, if they get there, they will have beaten UCLA, which is a legitimate team. And then they will have beaten Notre Dame and then they will have won the Pac-12 championship as well. So they'll have three. Their best three wins are ahead of them, Eric, if they actually get them. And so they're going to be much more highly thought of in that scenario. Now, I think that means they're not going to get there. But if they do get there they will be in the conversation and it will be Tennessee. It will be the Michigan Ohio state loser. And it will be the Clemson North Carolina winner. And you'll have four teams there for one, one spot. If TCU is undefeated four teams for one That's spot. My okay, and if great. TCU That's loses, good. do they go into that or they no, drop T- even T- below that? TCU probably oh, drops basically all out. the way out. Yeah. yeah. If they don't yeah. do that. That's what I thought. That's, That's what I, I kind of thought, but so you've yeah. listed the four teams I was thinking that would be flying, fighting for that one spot. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, if UNC happens to be Clemson, they're probably, they're probably the weakest of those four. Um, and so they're, they're probably not a serious candidate. It would probably be a USC, Tennessee, call it Michigan conversation. Um, I mean, I don't like USC's chances in that conversation, but at least they'll be happy. Let me ask you a question. USC, though, will have, as you said, their best wins are ahead of them. The committee will like that. They'll be the only one of those three that's the conference champion. Tennessee's that's, not that's in the right. SEC championship right. game. That's Michigan right. is not. That's um, right. Those other teams had their chance and controlled their own destiny. Michigan, if, under the scenario, Michigan lost to Ohio State. They could have beaten Ohio State. They didn't. Tennessee could have beaten Georgia. They didn't. So I, I I'm just going to leave. I'm going to make a prediction here. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, all of our listeners are Wharton Mighty Ball. If USC runs the table, of course, it's counterfactual because we'll, if they don't run the table, it's nothing. If they run the table, I think they're in. All right. Well, you've got the conference. I, I, I like it when they put weight on conference championships and they say they do. But I think mostly they go. They have gone. They've surprised us by just going with the better teams. We'll see. That's a, it'd be a great debate. It'd be a great debate. And it'd be fun if U.S. I don't think USC is going to do it, but they might. By the way, probably the most interesting game of the weekend is USC at UCLA. So that, that's what I'm saying. Fun. That's what made me think about it. Well, it's fun when that game is meaningful. And it's been a while since it's been meaningful. And uh, the, the Trojans are favored, even though it's in Pasadena. It's one and a half point line. And it means something for the first time in a while. So it's a lot, a lot of fun out there. Other ones, I mentioned TCU at Baylor. We've got, uh, you know, Utah and Oregon, probably an elimination game for the Pac-12 championship. But otherwise, you know, there's just not a whole lot. Bedlam is this weekend, but man, has it fallen off the 
radar. Okie, Okie State going into going into Oklahoma. They're seven and a half point underdogs. They are still in contention. Oklahoma State wins out. They're in contention for the for the Pac-12 for the Big 12 championship. But I don't know why it's not bothering me as much? Maybe I, maybe because you. I, I think fact that there's three or four meaningful games like TCU Baylor's clearly meaningful. Georgia and Kentucky, this is what you've talked about all the time, Kate, is that you say, well, they're both ranked teams. What could the spread possibly be? Uh, 22 and a half points. 22 points. Is I know, incredible. but, you know, USC, UCLA, Utah, Oregon, there's some games. There's some I'll, games. I got college football to watch. I, I got know, stuff to watch. Here's, here's one thing to think about when the rankings come. Here's the most fun thing to do with the rankings is going to be think about what we would be paying attention to if we had a 12-team playoff. Because oh. the, what, what that does is it just gives us these other margins to pay attention to, and it'd be, it'd be fun. We've got some still teams to pay attention to, but it would be more um, in that scenario. All right, guys, that's enough on college football for this week. Other sports, we haven't talked much about hockey, and we're getting a little bit deeper into the season. And remarkably, we have a couple of teams that are just putting some, some amazing records Three on the teams. Board. Three teams, actually. Yeah. The so, let, Bru- the, so I'll just list them out. The Boston yeah. Bruins are 14-2. and two. Um, the New Jersey Devils are uh, twelve and three, and the Vegas Golden Knights are thirteen and three. And so how so, uh, how unusual are these records? Well, I mean, just to go, okay. So I mean, all those the easiest way to I think to think about hockey records is like kind of a point percentage. So you just like take you know how many points they have as a max percentage of the maximum number. And remind I mean, us Bruins, of the remind us of the point system in hockey. Two points for a win, zero points for a loss. And then one point for an overtime loss, which is, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you made it to overtime. It's the old version of the tie is now the overtime Consider it loss. a tie. You lost yeah. the game, but you, you tied at the end of regulation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. And so, okay. So the Bruins, for example, um, are like, their 14 and two is like a 0.875 point percentage. Mm-hmm. Just historically, that would be, you know, if they somehow could keep that going the whole season, it would be the new record. But just to kind of give you the, the kind of what we're shooting for, like as as kind of the record is the Canadian Montreal Canadiens in 76, 77. Uh, they went 68 and 12 back when there was that 12 meant tie actual ties. So 68 and 12 for a point eight two five point percentage. Jeez, jeez, yeah, jeez. Yeah. OK. And, that, and I mean, of course, that's a long time ago. The kind of more recent one that we maybe have in our minds is the Tampa Bay Lightning had that crazy season a couple a few years ago. They went 62, 16, and four. And that's a 0. 0.78 point percentage. 0. 0.78. So 100 yeah. points, 100 points lower. But this obviously all of this is super, the impressiveness yeah, I mean, is super games. sensitive to sample exactly, size, right? Exactly. So I'd like to that's norm right. it for sample size and have some sense of how extreme this point no, go is so, so i'm going to go back to what i we did a couple of weeks ago so let's just say the bruins were going to be a 0.6 team going into the season or 0.65 they're going to be good but not that yeah. good so now the question is you know this is what we as statisticians do it's like a, a beta bernoulli so we've got 16 bernoulli outcomes the games let's assume win loss is the only outcome for a second We've got 16 Bernoulli outcomes. So real quickly, outcomes. Eric, Ber- Bernoulli. I think of one, them as a coin flip. There's a coin yeah. flip. One, one, one zero yeah. outcome with some probability. Zero outcome with some probability P, with some mm-hmm. unknown probability P of mm-hmm. success. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a prior on their P, and that's the beta distribution. And the so nice the, thing. But by, by the prior, I mean, we've got, we, we might think. Leaf, it's, it's, let's say. 
it's a continuous, it's a full distribution that says there's some probability it's 0.1, there's some probability it's 0.2, there's some probability, et cetera. Okay. That, and you're going to model that with a beta distribution, which just is, gives you a very flexible way of modeling probability from zero to one. The real beauty of it is that when you partner together an observed distribution for the outcomes, which are binary, a Bernoulli, with a beta, you get what's called the beta Bernoulli. And then you could think of the prior as a prior number of wins and losses you're going to add on to the observed number of wins and losses. So let me just give you an example. Bruins are 14 and two. Let's imagine you said my priors were 20 games and they should have been 12 and eight. 12 and eight is 20 games. That's 60%. Well, then you'd add the 12 and 8 to the 14 and 2. And it's like the Bruins are 26 and 10 right now. You could compute the expected win percentage and the points per game from a 26 and 10 projected for the season. And there you go. So the beautiful okay, so- thing about this distribution is you, you have two things you have to think about. How much weight are you going to put on it? How many, in some sense, prior wins and losses are you going to count it as? And then secondly, what win percentage are you going to give them for those prior wins and losses? But once you determine that, as Shane said, you can just add that to their observed number of wins and losses to get an updated belief now that we're 16 games into the season. So let's let's just, I'm going to give you a couple of simple math problems to demonstrate the strength of the, because it's really all about the priors. What you're playing with is this beta Bernoulli gives you this real neat way of working your priors into it. And, and especially a way of working in the strength of your priors. And so you're saying my prior on this team was 0.6, but now the question is how strongly do you hold those priors? How how much information is in those priors? And you're saying this model is this neat thing that the stronger your priors, you can just represent it as the number of games. And so if I said, well, it's kind of weak priors, I'm going to call it a three and two record. That's just, that's a 0.6. It's 0.6. It it's is. only, it's five games worth of weight on my priors. Alternatively, I could call whatever and I'd give me another, I, if I was really strong. I'd call it, you know, 30 and 20. It's like, okay, so that's the same probability, but with much more weight. And look at the difference it makes when you go to update. Now we've watched them play 14 games or 16 games. And then they're 44 and 22, uh, as opposed to three and two, they're 17 and four. And so it's a huge difference between the two. And I think that's it, it that's the beautiful thing about it. And it's also, I think, what, what what's my belief? I'm sure people have studied this. I mean, What's your intuition, Shane? You're a, is a prior. Like if you had to put weight on a prior, is it 20 games in hockey? You're if talking you about equal? now. You're talking about the optimal prior for 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 updating in hockey. What do you think the optimal? Like yeah, so uh, I think it's more than 20 actually. Yeah, I'd say, I, I'd I, say I, more I, than 20. I, I would almost put it at like a half a season. Well, that's 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 what, the way you want to think about it, Eric. Is by the end of the season. What weight do you want on your priors? And that's going yeah. to tell you how many games. Well, if you put out the problem I'm having is the, I, I, if you put half a season's worth on the prior, then after 80 games, you've got two thirds on the season and one third on the prior. That seems a little bit low to me on the season for me. I don't know. For me, I don't know. It, it's just, I don't well, know. that's why we're subjective. As I said, it's low for me. It's not low for Shay, not low for you. It's okay. It's low for me. Well, that's, that's a surprise. I think it would surprise a lot of people how much weight you have in these models at the end on, on the prior at the end of the season. And some people think, well, in fact, there are a lot of people who mechanically kind of work them out of the model mm-hmm. by the end of the year, because they yeah. think philosophically they shouldn't be in there. But if your goal is to predict, you don't have a philosophy that likes yeah, right so or wrong. Yeah. I'm like gonna... for example, if you were to like, I mean, as far as determining who wins the regular season, obviously you do, you know, you, you know, that's you, you want the prior to kind of go down to zero for that. But if you were to then take that and use it, use regular season 
plus prior to predict the playoffs, I think you still totally would different. want prior in there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's totally different. I was talking about if I was trying to predict the number of wins that they'll have or the points per game, which I think is a nice way to think about oh, it at the end of the season. Yeah. Well, well, well obviously, by, yeah, the prior has to be zero at the end of the season because you've observed all the games at the end of the season. But it, yeah, but, but, I'm but, even, if, I, but I'm even thinking about, I, I like I like the way you framed it, uh, Cade, which is, I think by the halfway point of the season, regardless of let's even say I'm predicting their true strength, their true probability of winning a game. I think I'm about two thirds on the season and one third okay. on the prior case. And Shane, Shane, Shane would be 50, 50. 50. Yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. two thirds, one third, but I'm, yeah. you know, okay. But you're also empirical enough to want the data and actually fit that. You want to yeah. fit that weight. Absolutely. I'm going to, yeah, I, exactly. I'm just giving you no opinion, but anyway, well, I, let me go back so, to Shane's point. Hold, hold on, it's hold on, shocking hold on. to me that there's three teams with this record. Let me give you a quick observation since we're just talking about models here that um, the other thing if in an optimal in, in these models, we're talking about every game doesn't count the same. Um, you, you, you have some decay. So if you're going to back to the forecasting, so you're forecasting what's going to happen next or at the end of the football season, you're forecasting what's going to happen in playoffs. Do you weigh week one, the same as week 17. Well, let's, let's be clear in the, you know, you, you, you want to do fancy stats. I just want to do fancy, simple stats. No, I'm, um, but I'm, the, doing simple, Bernardo, I'm doing a Bernoulli, simple version. In the Bernoulli, every observation counts the same and so there's yeah. no decay. And as I'm sitting here at week, uh, you know, 16 games in, they all 16 count the same. And now if you want to build a model where there's a time decay, in some sense, oh, I can compute weighted numbers of wins and losses due to decay. I can do that, too. But again, the simple Bader Bernoulli model, no, every win counts the same. That's it. It doesn't matter. It's invariant to the ordering. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, it gives you that, that the beauty of simplicity. But if, in, in these models, when you go fitting them, you start fitting decay. And I'm working up to an observation that who do you think has a stronger where do you think? priors are stronger college or, or, or professional. Where do the weights on the prior last longer? Where at the end of the season is the prior optimally stronger NFL or college football? I mean, the prior has got to be stronger for college. Cause you just yeah. don't have the data. Like you don't have an actual, like you, you don't have as much Good. observation. That's, that's, that's exactly right. But, it, but, but, the, but the companion piece is that the decay rate is also higher. And it's, mm. inter- it's interesting that there's just there's like, so the, the non-stationarity or something. The non-stationarity of the performance is higher in college football than professional football. Let me, just ask Shane a yes, let me ask Shane a yes, no question right now. Do we end up with more than one team in hockey this year with over 110 points? No, probably not. I would say no. Yeah. Why are we not going to go through the exercise of forecasting, you know, the Bruins final win total and the way we do the Yankees, you know, peri- periodically through the season, if they stay with this 14 and two kind no, of, we should. Rate, I mean, I, I, we're going to have to keep track of this. I'm going to keep track of these three teams. I'll do it. Well, we'll I start mean, having to make keep track of them anyway, but you know, but yes, I'll, I'll let, let's keep this running. We'll, we'll we're check in. I'll give you my prediction to bite someone I said right now. Uh, they're going to 34, 60%. There's 66, 40. I predict they're going to win 53 games. The Bruins win 53 and then however, some number of ties and whatever. So they'll end up about 111, 112 points. All right. Prediction. All right. So we got, we yeah, got to start. Like we'll, we'll start. We'll start crowdsourcing our predictions as well. We'll have to get, have to get on record for all of us, by the way, how's Seattle doing? How are the Kraken doing season two, our friends in Seattle? Yeah, not, not 
I, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's not great. It's not great. Okay. Uh, I mean, well. you know, they're, they're, they've got a winning record, but they, I, I mean, I haven't watched them play a few times. I don't think that they are, are in, they're, they're play, you know, they're, they're a middling team. Okay. Well, they're they'll get, they'll, they need now, to get there. For, for two years in, they're doing fine. I just, they're not, they're not ready to go up with the Giants of the uh, West yet. Okay. All right, guys. Well, that's been a second quarter. We've still got two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half of Wharton Moneyball now, we have uh, Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan has a brand new book out. He's got a book called Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. It's about soccer. What's the big title? Why am I missing the big title? Net Gains. Net Gains. Net Gains, Net gains is the name of the book. Brand new out, just in time for the World Cup, just in time for us to learn a little bit about the state of soccer. In with me this quarter to talk with Ryan is Adi Weiner. Ryan, we've traded emails and or tweets and various things, but we've never met in person. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for joining Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, listening to the show every week, so I'm happy to happy to chat with you guys. That's great. That's great. Appreciate that. Um, we we want to we're trying to talk to soccer people right now because we're trying to get up to speed so we can watch the World Cup with just a little more education than otherwise, um, and but then, but then you've got this great book and I've read maybe half of it in the last 24 hours. And I've got to say, I love it. I can genuinely say, I love it. I was hugely entertained every, every chapter I, I listened to and, 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 or read. And so I think there's a lot we could talk about here. Um, let's give the folks a little background on you because we need to know where you're coming from. One, you're, you're a staff writer at ESPN. Now you've been, uh, you've written for the ringer but your, your background on soccer is that you played college soccer and you yeah. grew up playing soccer and, and you write about growing up being one of the, you know, you're on the like club teams for long Island. You were like this star kid soccer player. I don't know if you mentioned where you played college soccer. In Holy cross. You did play. Uh, Holy cross. Okay. Got yeah. Very, very tiny division one school <laughs> up in Massachusetts. Right, right, right. Um, all right. So you're in Southern California now. So you grew up in Long Island and you go to school in Massachusetts and you're like, the heck with this cold Northeast. I'm going to Southern <laughs> California. Is that the way it worked? Pretty much. I mean, if you want me to get into my backstory, I, yeah. So I uh, grew up playing soccer, was on a bunch of competitive teams on Long Island. Um, was going to go to, this will probably offend you guys actually, was about to go to Columbia. Um, and then the coach that was recruiting me got fired. Um, nice. So that, that fell through, ended up going to Holy Cross. Um, had an extremely mediocre career uh, as an average Division One midfielder. My claim to fame was uh, scored in overtime at BC against BC, who's kind of a eternal rival of Holy Cross. And BC okay. had Alejandro Bedoya, who was a starter for the U.S. at the last World Cup. Um, he oh was on gosh. their team. Oh my! So gosh. Uh, you know, I can I can find a way to <laughs> weasel that into any <laughs> conversation about the U.S. national team. Um, and then after that, you know, became a, an editor, eventually uh, worked at Outside Magazine. Um, that brought mm -hmm. me from New York to Santa Fe, then mm -hmm. got hired by another magazine called Pacific Standard in Santa Barbara. Um, doesn't exist anymore, but it was kind of a social science based thing. And then from Jeez. there, 
<laughs> got hired by Grantland, the uh, yeah, right now defunct <laughs> website. Bill, Bill followed, Simmons Enterprise, yeah, yes. And then I followed all my colleagues from, or a lot of my colleagues from Grantland to the Ringer, where right. I was in. I was an editor, but also was basically the Ringer's uh, de facto soccer writer at the same right. time. And then eventually left that and kind of went off on my own, wrote this book, got hired by ESPN. Now I'm talking to you. One of the fun things about the book is that it's so current. I mean, you know, that you're, you're talking about 2018 season, 2020 season, 2021. I mean, there's something about it to me that makes it feel very like relevant. Um, wh- when I think of what you're doing in this book, I think you've got, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're telling the story of where soccer is right now. You're, you're talking about soccer. You're talking about soccer and analytics. And you're also talking about the evolution of analytics because you, you cover yeah. other, other fields and other technologies. And it's really useful in that way. Um, you, you run a lot of our friends and guests through here. It's a lot of Luke Bourne is somebody that we, um, we have a lot of respect for and obviously has influenced a lot of the people that we have on this show. You have XKCD, the comic strip in the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. between Luke Bourne and XKCD, I'm not sure you could do any better. Um, but you've got it. You've got some things to say about soccer. I mean, you you kind of from the very beginning, you're like you're saying the U.S. team, the U.S. doesn't know how to develop players. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody understands what happens in soccer. And that's that's one of the things that you're kind of you you want to take us to the edge of knowledge, but the whole time you're telling us but it's actually, we're not very far. Like nobody knows what the hell's going on. Is is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, if you want to want to try to tie it back to my playing career, like, you know, I mentioned playing against Alejandro Bedoya. Um, to me, I felt like he was, you know, one of the 40 best players I would say I played against, like from high school through college. And he ended up having by far the best professional career of anyone I played against. And I think, you know, there's just this weird, like, you know, I played division one soccer, um, pretty high level in the U S I don't think I used, was given a data point at any point in my entire career. Um, and I had like, no, there were very few, like even, approaching objective ways of determining your performance. It's like, I would play a game and I would just kind of like the game would end and it would be like, well, I think, I think I played pretty well. Right. <laughs> Cause I wasn't a, wasn't a, you know, if you're an attacker, right. You're trying to create goals or score mm-hmm. goals. Mm-hmm. If you're a keeper, you make a lot of saves. If you're a center back, I guess maybe you're clearing some balls. I was a midfielder and it's just like, I think I played well, but then, you know, mm-hmm. you realize how, like one event in over the course of a game can totally skew your um, knowledge of, (laughs) or your perception of how you played. So then if you just like apply all that to just soccer writ large, I think, you know, I think that's kind of how I came to that realization. But I think the point is more about like, you know, so soccer is the, the book is kind of about that sort of like two stories happening. One is the adoption of what we, have learned about the sport through, um, you know, data analysis or any other kind mm-hmm. of like evidence-based mm-hmm. decision-making. And that is, um, you know, that's far behind all of the other sports because mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. how dynamic the game is and how mm-hmm. few goals there are. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is the like lack of interest in adopting data analysis mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Europe, mm-hmm. which very much is like, 
it just exactly mirrors everything that happened in baseball and then happened in basketball yeah. and is now happening in yeah. football. Yeah. So it's almost like with writing this book where you described it as kind of like a, a current history or whatever, you know, in some ways I, I had the benefit of writing this book while not knowing exactly where things are going to go in soccer. It's just, we've seen the story play out elsewhere. So I have this benefit of like, you know, the, the nerds win out in some degree. It seems like in all the sports, right? So knowing that and knowing that they haven't won yet, here's a book. So, okay. Ryan, Ryan, I have a question for you because, um, you know, in, in the baseball revolution of analytics initially tackled a very simple problem, which is, are we evaluating players correctly? And, uh, and the answer was, in some cases, absolutely not. We were valuing things that really didn't matter and, and ignoring things that did. In soccer, and I've done a little research on the connection between soccer and how much you pay players and how they win, and it's really fascinating that the, uh, the connection between payroll and winning, particularly in the English Premier League, and that led me to conclude that whoever's deciding who's good is really good at it. In other words, the subjective things, the exact opposite of what we like, to, you know, we on Moneyball like to value, whoever's de determining who's good at soccer is, seems to know what they're doing. They put a lot of money behind good players. They put together good teams and they seem to do it yet. And yet I can't figure out how they're measuring it. OK, and hold on. What's what's the what I don't I'm not following your logic. Adi. You're usually much tougher case nut to crack than that. What's your logic? Here? <laughs> My logic is I, I did an analysis. It was actually a, we did it in conjunction with ESPN where they gave us payroll information. And and we correlated to, to points in the English Premier League and soccer by far had had the strongest correlation between what you paid your team and how well you did. And so I inferred versus relative to what other sports is oh, all, all the other major sports in America. Uh, the, I didn't look at I see. I, see. I looked at NHL. Okay. We looked at foot, uh, football, ba basketball, baseball, and we okay. threw in soccer. Now, and the um, and I was blown away by that because it it said to me, perhaps wrongly, and I'll let you correct me, that somehow they're not dumping money. At least maybe that's because they do have. There's a much bigger range in payroll, uh, even in baseball, which goes from about fifty million to three hundred million. Um, I think in soccer, I think it's even bigger range. Um, so you can sort of blow money at, and not worry about it. But what I interpreted from that was that somehow good players are identifiable and, and they, and they get a lot of money and they do well and teams are, are and, and there's ability to find a good player, even if we statisticians aren't measuring it. Yeah. Is that so, wrong? Based reactions? No, I don't know. <laughs> you are obviously your analysis um, of the wage data is correct. I, I talk about this in the book to me, I think, it makes, I look at that and I see everyone is just doing everything in the same way. There's no innovation happening. So the money just wins out. And I think the point that backs up what I'm saying is wages. Yes, they are essentially like better than any stat we have in terms of predicting future performance in soccer. But at the same time, there's a transfer market and there's transfer fees you can pay for players and transfer fees have very little correlation in terms of performance. There's the stat I mentioned in the book is that the average record transfer for a team. So in soccer, for people who don't know, you basically, <laughs> you essentially pay a large fee, which um, terminates a player's contract. And then you also sign the player to a contract. That's essentially how it works. So, you know, for example, uh, Qatar, PSG, sorry, not Qatar, although they are owned by, <laughs> owned by Qatar. So it's not, you know, it's total Freudian slip. Uh, signed Neymar for the record 
uh, of around $212 million was the transfer fee. So they literally paid Barcelona $212 million. And then they also had to sign um, Neymar to a contract. I guess it's similar to what happens with uh, like Japanese players coming to major league okay. baseball. So by, by and, the way, by the way, give us a sense of what the contracts are, what the players actually see when they do sign the contract, like Neymar, Neymar. So $200 million, $210 million transfer fee. And then roughly what was he paid by PSG? I th- it's about like 25 million a year, I think okay. is okay. R- roughly what he's getting. There's a pretty good argument that uh, the transfer fees are taking money away from the players' contracts mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the point I'm getting at is that the record transfer for a given b- big five, we call them the big five leagues, the record transfer for each club on average only plays 50% of the potential minutes with his team, which to me, that suggests that teams are terrible at uh, identifying players. I think teams are good at identifying players once they have them around and they see them at practice and they're good at re-signing the players. Like Liverpool, for example, just re-signed a bunch of their best players to much higher wages. And now Liverpool have a higher wage bill um, and they're one of the best teams. So I think to me, the wage connection is, it's two things. It's teams are roughly all doing the same thing and, trying to find wins, I guess, in the same way. Um, and then it's also that over time, I think the right players get paid the most. Um, but in terms of just identifying a free agent in a vacuum, I think teams are are still terrible at it as the transfer market value suggests. Could, could, could I, I buy all that. I want to add one other possibility, Adi, and this is a little bit more of a statistical one. If, if the high level talent is relatively concentrated relative to the number of teams, you just get a real dispersion in talent, even though it's not any, it's just the a relatively few obvious great players get concentrated in the big six in the premier league or the big two in La Liga or whatever. And yeah. that that drives and so those it, by identifying the obvious best players and getting them into a few clubs, those clubs then do a lot better than everybody else, and you get these very strong correlations. Does that not? Yeah, that okay. I'm, I know how to look at a. a, a uh, I'm not insinuating you don't know that I don't know this, but I do know how to look at a, a scatter plot, and it isn't driven by just a couple teams. It's a fairly nice year over year relationship. Um, that you know the bad ones do bad, the middle ones do middle, and the top ones do top, um, and. Uh, it's uh, it's extraordinary, but I think what the insight you've given me is fantastic. They're much better at getting paying the money, and I'm, I wasn't looking at transfer fees, just payroll. Yeah. Uh, they're much better at putting the money at the players that they get, and they and they and they want to sign and keep because they're better, um, and they have the money to do so. I think that I think following what Kate said, it is a huge disparity. I mean, you would know exactly the numbers, but it's a there's just a massive difference in what they pay at the top compared to the bottom. Um, and not that, even the bottom, just the, like the bottom of the, even the middle league. is, uh, yeah. is, is just yeah. a lot. And, it's and, it also, and, and it's also year after year after year, the same ones are competing at the top and they, and they have to pay a lot of money and they do very well. And it's more of the time series component of it. Um, it's certainly not the end and the end and, uh, and end all analysis. And my data is actually 10 years old, possibly, probably because it's hard to get, right. It's, I mean, I yeah. was given this data, this payroll data and, and, uh, have no one's t- uh, sought to give it to me again. <laughs> yeah. There's data that, uh, you know, uh, the sports reference sites have FB ref now their, uh, soccer site and they have wage data, but it's very, they're very clear that it's just estimated and it's very hard to find just cause you know, there's, different leagues across different countries doesn't have the same sort of um, 
uh, cartelized structure as American mm-hmm. sports. Well, Ryan, you were saying there were two kind of parallel threads in this book. One is that the game itself is hard to analyze. And that's a reason that analytics has, has been handicapped. And you make this case over and over again, and, and it's it's compelling. And then you say, well, and also I would I would call it culturally not open to this kind of analysis. And I, I those are the exact two dimensions that I think about when I think about explaining which sports are more advanced analytically than others, because you've yeah. got to have some cultural openness to this kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. the reason football and hockey lag basketball, because basketball is a, about equally difficult, maybe slightly less difficult than hockey, but culturally ownership has come in. It's turned over. It's been much more open to this kind of thing, but you're, you're making the case that soccer has got kind of two, um, two hurdles stacked up against it. <sighs> Um, yeah. Both the difficulty of analyzing and the and the and the culture. Can you tell us what we do know? If you were going to prepare us for the World Cup, to, and 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 you know, I, I know that all this won't go through. A lot of your analysis here is at the club level. And we're going to be watching national teams, but still, tell us what we should. You know, give us the four or five. You you have a number of chapters here that are focused around some of these issues. But if you were to say, here are the four or five things you'd need to know to kind of understand what the cutting edge of our soccer knowledge is. So, for example, let's start with expected goals. We're going to see lots of XG references over the next yeah. month. And I better understand it having read your book. <laughs> um, and I appreciate that. But it seems really fundamental. Like you go through, you say, this is like really basic stuff and it's really helpful stuff. So let's just make sure we understand that at the beginning place. Yes. So it's interesting, like so many different people kind of came to the same um, conclusion. They basically, you know, they want to analyze soccer. So you have goals, right? But goals only tell you so much. You can kind of try to find how predictive goals are future goals. And you find that they're actually not that predictive. So then you find the component part of goals. It's shots, right? And you can just, you can look at shot totals and you have a decent on a decent understanding of who the best teams are if you just look at how many shots a team's taking how many teams that, uh how many shots they're conceding but then you eventually realize that you know you you could have a team that's taking 18 shots from outside the box every game you could have a team that's taking six from inside the six yard box obviously these are all very intuitive things um so expected goals is essentially it's a model that using historical data accounts for where the shots taken on the field so r- the the basic way to understand it is if there's a tap in on the goal line, it's probably worth 0.99 expected goals because the guy could always fall down. Um, he could somehow hit it over from the goal line. I've seen it happen. So nothing's uh, uh, nothing's worth one expected goal, obviously. And then a shot from, let's say, midfield, right, will be worth 0.01. So 1% conversion probability. And so it was a way of basically quantifying what coaches and people that have played played soccer before understand like you're trying to create better chances than the other team and mm-hmm. plenty of people have played a game watched a game where it felt like their team created better chances than the other team and they lost or vice versa a lot easier to admit the first one than the second one ryan real quickly that where is the how good is the technology and how much consensus is there on what on how we calculate these expected goals and i think the answer whatever the answer is going to be i think it probably matters less than we analysts want it to matter i think broadly it kind of works and so don't worry about it but can you tell us briefly like one just like how much consensus is there is there's not a model for doing this right so there's gonna be a zillion models. yes that's one of the the issues that have has (laughs) popped up recently 
you know, you anyone could seemingly just create an account that says, you know, uh, <laughs> Cades XG and just throw yeah, out random there numbers. There you go. Right, and people, right. if it supports your opinion, people will follow. At first, the models were pretty basic, you know, so location, body part, a shot with your foot is more likely to be converted than a shot with your head. And then the type of pass that led to the shot, um, mm-hmm. like a through ball just tended to have more value. And then mm-hmm. there was this other thing that Opta, one of the data providers had called big chances, which is they have these guys that are coding every game, recording every action, and they tag a shot as a big chance if they think that it's a chance that is more likely to be converted than not. And they huh. found that that made expected goals more predictive Better. of okay. feed performance, but okay. it's also then just a guy deciding yeah, <laughs> something right. subjectively. Right. right. Um, so Ted Knutson, who you've had on the show before, yeah, um, yeah. founded StatsBomb. And what StatsBomb does, they got rid of the big chance um, qualifier and they use, they don't use tracking data but they use freeze frame technology using computer vision where they also take into account the height of where the ball is. And they found that determines how likely you are to convert the chance. And then they take into account the positioning of the defenders, um, which obviously makes a huge difference of the likelihood Mm of you converting Mm -hmm. a shot. And Mm -hmm. they've removed the big chance thing, as I mentioned, and that, to me, that's the industry leading. That's the gold um, standard right now. Stats bomb, stat bomb, stats bombs, XG. Okay. Yeah. But so I think like the, you know, this is all kind of very obvious stuff, right? Yeah, I think it's right. ways. But what it did, what I think makes it an interesting stat is it kind of, I think it does what any, like any of these sort of uh, paradigm changing stats in all sports have done. It both like confirms some inherent conventional wisdom people have about the sport, but then it also like tweaks it slightly. So I think most people, if you'd ask them, why are why is a good goal scorer a good goal scorer? They would say, because he's good at kicking the ball into the net. Like at the actual action of kicking the ball into the goal, he right. is more likely to convert that right. into a goal than the average player. But that's right. just not, that's not true. They're, the, the reason players score more goals than other players is because they find space in the box and get a ton of really good shots. Yeah. Um, and that's, most players regress towards their expected goals over time. Um, and so that's kind of the- So hold on, so thing. right, you, there were two pieces there, I think. One is they 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 get a lot of shots. So they, they yes. take shots, but they, they create shots. But then the better goal scorers are getting higher expected value shots, essentially. Yes. Um, yes, but yeah, they're not, not better at making them. Yeah, conditional on the XG, they're not any better, basically. Yeah. Or there's there's not much variation on that. Yeah, so the Lionel Messi is- essentially one of the cool things about soccer's analytics movement is it's confirmed that he's the best at everything in the sport, essentially on the attack again. <laughs> and he's, you know, there's, right. you need like many, many seasons to determine if a player is a, a good finisher or a bad finisher in terms of in comparison to XG. Right. Basically, right. Right. Messi over his career, expected goals he's like known as the best finisher he's actually better than everyone else also at converting the shots into goals Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. expected goals still account for around 80 percent of all the goals he's scored so his finishing ability is still only 20 percent about yeah so like you were saying the technology improvements feel like they're they're valuable right but you're still you're getting 80% from these more basic yeah, models that we currently right. have. Now, now take us, take us forward in two directions. One that you also get expected assists. So in soccer, yeah. you get an assist. If you make the pass that then gets converted into goal. 
Yeah. And these guys are like, well, we like that. We like giving these score key, the goal, the goal scorers some credit or debits, depending on the expected goal. Let's do yeah. the same for passers. And if, if they put a nice pass into a place where the expected goal is quite high, shouldn't they effectively get the, the yeah. credit for the assist, right? This is, yeah. this is wise. Okay. Then the other direction you, that you go and it's like, how do people use XG? And it gets used in lots of ways. Um, I, my, 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 the moment that I remember best was who is the keeper for the, U.S. in 2014, Tim Howard. Tim Howard, and they got knocked out by uh, Belgium. Belgium. Belgium, and he 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 faced like how many shots? Like 10, 12, 5, 15. It's like some ridiculously high number of shots. He gave yeah. him two goals, and yet it was like, which is a lot, but it was the best expected goal denied or whatever the yeah. hell you call tournament <laughs> yeah. or something crazy like that. Yeah. Okay, but you tell the story of, and it comes from Luke Bourne, I think, on a. They grabbed a player from Scotland, a striker yeah. who had been highly lauded, but whenever the Scottish team got him or whoever it was that got him, he didn't score any goals. And yeah. so they were happy to part with him. And Luke's like, hold on. So you tell the story. because This is a great example of how they use XG. Yeah. So uh, one of the interesting things about this, right, is that like you're almost more likely to get criticized in the media if you're a striker that is good at getting in the space to get the shot. Right. And then you miss, miss a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. Then if you were a guy that's just like not getting into those areas, so you Mm -hmm. don't have the opportunity to fail. So -hmm. there's this guy, um, I believe he's from the Ivory coast and went to Celtic in Scotland and just got a ton of really good shots and didn't convert the shots. So Scottish media, people in Scotland were like, this guy just like, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have what it takes, right? Mm-hmm. He loses mm-hmm. his nerve in front of goal. While Luke, <laughs> um, you know, Luke being someone who's looking for, you know, market inefficiencies wherever he can find them. He has expected goals data to, for the Scottish league while he's running, running to lose in France. And they also have um, some data from when he was playing. I believe it was Slovenia. He was in before okay. Uh, okay. Scotland. And they saw there that, he was basically even with his expected goals in Slovenia. And it's not, the balls aren't different in, in Slovenia. Right. The field's right. roughly the same. Um, and so Luke was like, uh, we can probably like get this guy on loan because Celtic, you know, they're not going to keep playing him. So they yeah. got him and yeah. he scored something like eight goals or something in half right. a season. They right. made it to the promotion game, didn't get promoted. But, you know, that's the that's the obvious use case. And I guess the other way would be, you know, a little more sinister, not sinister, but if you have a player that say he scores 20 goals in a season on, let's say like 11 expected goals or something, right? this transfer market I alluded to, this incredibly inefficient market for players, you can probably um, sell that player um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for a lot more and -hmm. then use that money for um, a replacement. And if you're not the top, top, top team, that's one of your stocks and trade is to yeah. sell players. I mean, this is one of yeah. your main, your main goals. So yeah. it's just a more fundamental performance measure. And so those who see that and trust it are going to make better decisions based on it. Ryan, we're going to step away for a second here. We'll be back for Q4 after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. All right, guys, welcome back. Q4 here with Ryan O'Hanlon, Ryan, the author of a new book called net net gains ryan was a collegiate youth and collegiate soccer player now writes for espn after stint at uh at grantland and the ringer 
Ryan, um, there's two other pieces I want to talk about before we go straight into the World Cup because it's going to be yeah. it's going to be one relevant. One is because that let's take the most concrete one first: set pieces. It sounds like wisdom around set pieces has really evolved in recent years, and we're going to see a lot of them while we're watching the World Cup. And without knowing anything, we might not know that these are like really important moments, and the teams mm-hmm. are. Hiring coaches that specialize just in this thing. Get us, bring us up to speed if you can on on set pieces as we roll into the World Cup. You yeah, have an entire so, chapter on. Yeah, so you're you're correct. The last World Cup, um, I believe, set the record for most set piece goals, and I think I would be shocked if that. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked, but we'll be see a similar total, I would imagine, this time. So, kind of the general thinking with with set pieces was that. Coaches didn't like to practice them because it meant that you were, you you were, because you have limited practice time, right? So if you're practicing set pieces, you're not practicing whatever kind of magical open play practice <laughs> you're, you're trying to do. And uh-huh. as a, as a player, former player, um, I can vouch <laughs> to practicing set pieces is boring as hell. Most yeah, You're right. just standing there for most of the time while practicing kind of like small sided games or whatever you're, you're touching the ball and playing. Yeah. And, um, so that was kind of the conventional wisdom of coaches. And, you know, I think on its face probably seems relatively accurate, right? Like, okay, um, fewer, less open play practice time, you're going to be less effective mm-hmm. in open play. So you maybe you'll get better at set pieces, but then you'll be worse from open play mm-hmm. and it'll all, mm-hmm. all cancel itself out. Um, but so there's this team FC Michelin in Denmark who they're sort of the the Oakland A's of all this, I guess they're, they're like, they're, I would say they're as advanced in their use of data um, as any sports franchise in the world, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they decided to, that they figured, okay, every goal in a game is basically like a minor miracle, right? Cause like, how do you get the ball (laughs) using your feet while the 11 other players are trying to stop you? Like, how does that, how could that even ever happen? You know? And you have a keeper who can use his hand. So like, it's just kind of magic what happens. So like uh-huh. when we have set pieces, we can actually do pre-planned movements with our players and they can, they know, they all will know exactly what they're going to do, right? Uh-huh. In a way uh-huh. that they don't from open play. So they practice set pieces really aggressively and they scored like 15 extra set piece goals and won the league. Mm-hmm. So what happened was everyone else in the Danish league caught onto this. They basically copied Michelin and also practice set pieces and what you saw was everyone in the league basically scored 10 more set piece goals but their open play (laughs) scoring remained the same too okay so they didn't it the theory that you would lose open play effectiveness by by spending time on set pieces was kind of this like unintentional economics experiment basically okay Um, okay and so it's progressively become a more and more important part of the game but a couple couple of basics real quick so what is the on a, on a, on a, on a, on a typical set piece, what's the probability that the goal is scored? Give us a base rate. I think it's like, it's not super high. It's like, uh, 0.1, 0.15. Is it even that high? Yeah. I think it's like point it's 0.1 or 0.05, something like that. But the average possession is 0.01 basically the average just possession possession okay leads to a goal about one percent of the time so it's still way higher than that and that's like that's with the data um 
of teams not really kind of optimizing their training methods. Yeah, for, right. Right. Okay. And then how many set pieces do you think we typically see in a World Cup match? How many set pieces will we see? And I'm thinking about corner kicks. I know there are other ones, but like corner, corner kicks are the most common, right? Yeah. So if you do corners and um, just like free kicks, the free yeah, kicks okay. that aren't, aren't, are not direct free kicks on goal. Okay. I don't okay. know. It's probably about 10 per team, I would say. Okay. In a game. Okay. Why is it that if, why is it that practicing it helps the offense, but not the defense? And will the defense catch up? I think the defense will catch up, but I think it's, it's just purely from like the offense knows what's happening. Controlling. Right? Okay. okay. Um, the defense just has, is reactive at all times. So if the, mm-hmm. the offense knows what they're doing, if mm-hmm. they execute it, it's really hard mm-hmm. for the defense to like, envision all of that and then react to it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, we, you know, we Rubes who not only didn't play soccer, but at least not at anything beyond playground and don't watch that much of it to us, the set piece looks like it's just a mosh pit. So give, can you give us some sense of what's going on in the set piece? Or I know there's lots of different things, but like, what's an example of something that, that the Denmark, it was, was it FC Mitchell? Um, Michelin. Michelin. Um, it, Oh, that's the one that's hard to spell in your yes. acknowledgments. Is that right? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, give us some sense of what a clever set piece coach comes up with. Just an example. Yeah. So my personal favorite is you have a defender. So most teams have a defender on a corner kick, let's say, um, standing like in front of the post on the end line right? In yep. case it's a low kind of bad cross this way, like the guy taking the corner can't just hit like a line yeah. drive into the box. Yeah. I think like there's a little bit of data to back this up, but this is more just my intuition. I'm a fan of you have an attacker make a very aggressive diagonal run in front of that player and you play a low driven ball toward him. And then you have him flick it with his head back into the box. And that sort of creates this like second situation that all the defenders yeah. suddenly have to react to while if okay. the attackers know a flick on's coming they already are expecting the sort of second phase of that right. so they can essentially move to move to that next phase basically okay. and then like a you know a rule of thumb is that in swinging corners which are ones that are curving toward the goal yep. so a right-footed guy taking it from the left side yeah they're more likely to lead to goals but they're less likely to lead to shots Okay. Um, which kind of actually makes some intuitive sense, right? Because if it's swinging away from the goal, it's coming towards the attackers. But then when you do make contact, you're more likely to be far away from the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there, is there a, is this one of those probabilistically better? You want more shots that are less likely. You want the goal, right? So you're happy to have the in-swing because you'll take the higher expected value of a goal. Yeah. I think in a vacuum, the, the in-swinger is better, but it it depends on who you have taking it to in some ways. Okay. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, all helpful. Um, one last like state of the world before we jump into, you know, Brazil versus um, England. Um, the, the, the style of play. And you talk in the last chapter about, look, I think you're talking to Sarah Rudd and, and, and Rudd is saying, you know, we have more influence over personnel than we do in game tactics, but still the, the game does evolve. And you're arguing in this book that there's a style of play that is generally advantageous and it's an aggressive style of play and it's keep the ball as far forward as possible, basically, and push it more aggressively and don't try this possession thing so much as I think I, is that roughly 
is, and you can put better words around that. Tell, <laughs> tell us more about that. Tell us more about that. And we can use that to transition to yeah. nas- national teams having styles of play or not. Yeah. So I, I, I'm very hesitant to say that there's like one best way to play because I think this, what makes the sport interesting is the best way to play is like 50% determined by what your opposition is trying to do. Right. Sure. But okay. so kind of the dominant trend recently is uh, this concept called pressing basically mm-hmm. where you push your entire, your defenders up really high, your attackers up super high and you try to win the ball back high up the field as basically as soon as you lose it. Mm-hmm. And it's based on this idea, this guy, Ralph Ranick, who kind of built up all the Red Bull teams, which mm-hmm. Red Bull mm-hmm. an energy drink. Yes. Uh, now runs some of the most successful soccer mm-hmm. clubs in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. He found, he found this research that said that a, goals are most often scored within eight seconds of winning um winning mm-hmm. possession mm-hmm. and he'd always mm-hmm. thought that d- you should defend higher up the field so those two things kind of work together in concert so you mm-hmm. can you win the ball back then you attempt really aggressive passes through the defense because there will be gaps in the defense because if you win the ball back from the defense they are transitioning out of their defensive shape into their attacking shape mm-hmm. and you're willing to try the really aggressive passes because you know that you're good at then attacking the ball if you lose it. So it kind mm-hmm. of creates this like mm-hmm. virtuous cycle basically. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. what I think is int- all the top teams do some version of this. Um, and what I think is interesting of it, especially when I think of it in terms of like, I don't know, it seems to me, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, that the general tactics of all of the major American sports have been too conservative uh, over the right. history, right? Where right. everything, all the, you know, evidence-based thinking is pushing us towards more aggressive decision-making. I, and with that's, the- as, you know, that's as good a summary as, as is available, wow. I'm sure. Uh, but it, but, it, but an, it's all, an interesting open question is why that is. Um, but I, I love it because I think it's one of the things that drives me crazy about football, criticism of football and like and the, the, the more aggressive analytics-based decisions in American football gets criticized and it's like it's so shocking that in a and it gets criticized kind of culturally in a visceral way which is surprising coming from this supposedly aggressive football culture so why why is that audi's protesting though it's true in football because you think of fourth downs in particular but in baseball the aggressive things are stealing and bunting and doing you know taking chances and those turn out but what about Uh, swinging for the fences i mean swinging for the fences and um, and swinging for and pitching for strikeouts those are aggressive things are they um in a certain way i mean i mean i mean i think they're just they're just good and they're just they're they always were thought of as hard to do and now they and now they're really working at it as opposed to doing other things i wouldn't necessarily call that aggressive you know liberal you know conservative versus aggressive play we might have to can we define aggressive as variance inducing is that would that be a would that be a feature of aggressiveness? Um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, but there's certain aspects of it. So clearly, going for you know bunting and, and stolen bases, stolen bases in particular are high variance, um, very high mm-hmm. variance, mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that has been. They just have negative expected value. So yeah, it's variance versus expected that's, value. That's, that's like right. You don't that's want right. To do it. Right? Okay, fine. So Ryan, you get we we're going to partially negative gonna, expected value. <laughs> We're going to take the edge off of your. We're going okay. to take the edge off of your overall. But I, but I, I'll support your broad sentiment. Absolutely. Yeah. In basketball, th- more threes than twos, right? Uh, to throw another. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. If yeah. aggressive is not the right word, I think they all are of yeah. a theme at least. And so with this pressing style, you are because no soccer players are perfect. No, 
tactical system is perfect. You are going to give up some goals that look absolutely horrible because your yeah, team's right. pushed up. And there's like three center backs in the world that are capable of like covering an entire half of the right. field by themselves. Right. And like you said, it's a very variance inducing way of playing. So you're going to have games where like the pressing doesn't come off and you give up two, you dominate the territory of the game, but you give up two breakaways basically. And it just looks terrible. Uh-huh. But I think it's fun. It's fun for the viewer. Fun for me. We like to break fun for the viewer. And I do think that it's probably over the long term, um, higher expected value, Ted. Uh, Knutson is quoted in the book is saying that too. And I think you've even, you even kind of saw it happen. Jesse Marsh is a character in the book is coaching Leeds uh, United in the premier league. He plays this very aggressive style yeah. and Leeds lost a bunch of games in a row. There was a bunch of articles about how Jesse Marsh was, you know, on the hot seat is his style wearing the team thin. Um, the vibes are very bad, but you kind of look <laughs> at the number, the numbers and his expected goal, their expected goals were relatively decent. They just, we're giving up a couple bad chances a game and not converting anything themselves. And yeah. then they go from that, they beat Liverpool and then they win their next game four three. Then they lose their next game three to four. So over the long run, it seems <laughs> like to me, like it works, but you kind of need the steal to commit to you it. You need the steal, exactly. And it's amazing that when I when I read that chapter, I was so delighted to hear that he was at Leeds because the Leeds win over Liverpool a few weeks ago is one of the rare moments that the Premier League makes it into the like the top of the ESPN feed. You yeah. know, something big happens when, and, and it was Liverpool losing the leads. And now it's yeah. connected to Marsh and Red Bull and your book. And it was, it was fun. Yeah. Look, we, I'm looking at the time and realizing how long we've kept you. And um, <laughs> it's, it's too long, but we got to hear a little bit before we let you go about the World Cup. And one of the ways we could do that is to jump into these data that you sent ahead of time where uh, someone we need to name, we need to, we need to name the, this, this colleague of, of yours online who's aggregated model-based predictions. He's at the, at the, as of this afternoon, he had like 11, and some of them are fancy, like Opta and Pinnacle, 11 model-based predictions for who's going to win the World Cup. And it's just, he's just ensembling these things, simple little average. And it, just to give people what those numbers are, at, as of this afternoon, he had Brazil 20% head and shoulders above everyone else. Their their continent competitor rival, Argentina, next at almost 13%. France, the only other team in, t- in double digits at 10. Spain at, Spain at basically 9. England, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany in the 6 to 7 range. How do you react, Ryan, when you see these kinds of aggregations? Anything surprise you or disappoint you there? It, it generally seems right to me. I mean, I think the the kind of assumption is that there's sort of, there's like a top eight, which I, you guys might've talked about this on a previous podcast, basically Portugal, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, England, Spain, France, and the two South American powerhouses. And then mm-hmm. within that, there's kind of another hierarchy, I guess. I mean, I think, I don't know, it's interesting, like international soccer, it's really hard to analyze because the players are changing all the time. The teams barely play any competitive games compared to the yeah. club game right um, right and they just don't have that much time to practice together and like okay hold on. That, was... this, this alone is informative this alone is helpful to us because this should suggest to us that uncertainty is higher here than yes. you one might think and it shouldn't be as surprising if one of these big eight teams just doesn't even make the knockout rounds yeah for example. i think that's completely correct I also think that the fact that the tournament's happening halfway through a season mm-hmm. um, adds even more uncertainty. I think all predictions, there should just be more uncertainty over them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
than there have been before. And then you also have this idea that basically since COVID, um, the soccer schedule has been super compressed. We still mm-hmm. haven't gotten fully out of the effects of the delay that happened. And so like the top players have played most like four world cups ago, there was like one player who had played 5,000 minutes before the world cup. And now going into this world cup, there's going to be like 40 or 50 basically. Um, And the the interesting thing about that is that all of the best teams have those players. So the lesser teams will have guys that just don't have any minutes. on. Nice. Nice. So I, I think there should be more uncertainty, but I think there should have been more uncertainty in the world cup in general, but only like seven teams have ever won it. We've like, really <laughs> right, never had a right. massive upset. So each year, like I'm proven wrong in that regard. Well, you know, back to talent, you, you had, you retweeted this, this uh, ridge plot of talent distribution of the various teams that are qualified. And it's, it's highly dispersed. I mean, even, even the U S which is clearly a middling team, you look at their, the distribution of the talent on their, of their players compared to the top teams. And it's really, really sobering. And back to Adi's point from the top of the show. I mean, it seems that talent drives outcomes in soccer. You know, there's quite a, quite a tight connection between the two. Um, Give us, give us a a country to keep eyes on um, either because of a a player or or a coach or a style that you think, you're, you're, you know, if you were to write, if you were to include one of these teams in a chapter in your book, for some reason, consistent with the rest of what you're talking about, who might that be? I, I think I would go with Denmark, which maybe is a bit of a cop out, as I just spent like a half an hour praising. Yeah, but I think you know, there's a lot of, you know, one of the stories here of the maybe lack of adoption of new ways of thinking in soccer is just like a geographical one right like these teams just aren't as close to the american sports team so there's less kind of bleed into the various methods but denmark is kind of like the brain center of like the most interesting stuff that's happening so i think there is a lot of spillover into the national team so if anything denmark is going to have amazing set piece routines right we talk (laughs) about set pieces at a tournament where you max play seven games like a set piece goal is especially valuable um and so i think in that regard denmark is going to Um, be ahead of everyone else. And then they also just have a pretty good team. I mean, they made the semis of the Euros and that was after their best player, Erickson, almost passed away on the field. Um, Right. He'll be playing. He's back playing. Is he really? My God. Yeah. And so they made the semis and they lost to England, but the game was at Wembley, right? So that's that (laughs) is going to be eliminated. So I think, again, I don't want to... This is a sort of a cop out again because Denmark basically have the best odds after that top eight that I talked okay. about. But okay. I think there's there is a lot going in their favor, and they only have one guy uh, over that five thousand minute mark I talked about. So they have there you we'll go. have fresher legs too. What about Uruguay? They're the all uniform team. Plus, my <laughs> nephew's girlfriend is from Uruguay. Is there any hope for <laughs> Uruguay? <laughs> Come on, man. Didn't they not yeah. qualify last time? They've got this. Don't they have a, they had, they won one back in the day, right? Aren't they like this yes. ridiculously? They won the first World Cup. All, okay. So they, and they're this tiny country. They're kind of fun to pull for. Yeah. They, uh, they, they're like most, I, I did an article in April where I, my editor made me predict every single game at the World Cup. Um, <laughs> they're the team who my opinion has changed the most about since then, because they have, they have this guy, Darwin Nunez, who plays for Liverpool. And he's like 
the god of expected goals basically oh, but really? is also okay. the god of like looking like he somehow doesn't know how to kick a ball <laughs> but it's like over time it's caught up and he's now like per 90 minutes he's over a goal and assist per 90 so he's okay. like this amazingly fascinating guy to watch and then they have a handful of midfielders who have scored a lot of goals too recently then they have Luis Suarez still playing who uh right, famously right. uh bit someone at one World Cup, <laughs> right. and then also for- punched Punch the ball. Oh out God, of the goal I forgot he was Uruguayan. That's not helpful to have him as. The well, that's thing. kind of that's. The, well, it's helpful in some the, ways. Not helpful yeah, for that, Uruguay. Sort of prides themselves on <laughs> doing whatever it takes to win. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of these, uh, last question. You got what is it? Who is this? This 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 new star? I think he's Man City, but he came from Europe. Yeah. That's the ridiculous goal scorer. Apparently, tell us something about him and who's he playing for. Uh, Erling Holland. He plays for Man City. Unfortunately, he's on Norway, <laughs> and Norway haven't uh, qualified for the World Cup. Okay. okay. Um, but he's twenty-two-year-old. Sort of. I I shudder when I hear the thought uh, of if America's best best athletes played soccer, we would you know win every World Cup. I don't necessarily uh-huh. agree with that, but he's sort of the argument against that. He's just this absolute freak athlete who just like mainly just is good at sprinting into the box at the right time and scoring a ton of goals. He, the over under for him, I think is it's like 40 goals now for, and it's his first season in the premier league and the premier league record is, I believe it's 34. So his (laughs) over under halfway through the season is 40 already. Okay. But Ryan, you're kind of waving your hands at his ability, but you're, you're lauding analytics. Like what do analytics tell us about why he is so excited? No, he's, he's amazing. Um, He's amazing at getting onto the ball getting amazing shots inside the box. Like he barely, his goals per touch ratio is, you know, I haven't, it's not a very prominent stat. So I don't know the exact, you know, leaderboard for that, but I imagine he's going to be like the all-time leader in goals okay. per touch ratio. Okay. So yeah, he he's like, he has the incredible understanding of space that you need to score goals to like mm-hmm. time your runs. Um, to get to the spot before the defender. Right. Mm-hmm. But he also has the incredible physical ability where he could be like three steps off of the defender and still get to the spot before the defender basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, you're raising other questions for future conversations, like this incredible ability to time your runs and to recognize space. This is for, we could talk about this because I know it's like this ephemeral quality that seems important, but hard to measure. So you can't find it ahead of time, but that's where we go. Next generation with sports, with soccer analytics, Ryan in eight and a half years, it's only been, I don't know, one or two times that we thought we we're going to go half an hour and we go a whole two quarters <laughs> with our guest, but we've just done that with you. Thank you for indulging it. Um, thank you for joining us today. Very much. Enjoy the book. Wish you a good, good luck with the, with your, with your work on the book. Thanks for letting me ramble. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Ryan O'Hanlon, Net Gains. Net Gains is the name of the book. It's a terrific look at um, the state of soccer and soccer analytics, but really the evolution of that over time. And along the way, kind of the evolution of sports analytics. We can strongly recommend Net Gains by Ryan O'Hanlon. All right. That was an unexpectedly long visit with Ryan. It's, it's good news when it goes that long. Um, it means that we, that's literally one of the most lost I've gotten with a guest. I looked down, it was at the 40 minute mark, but it was fun to talk to Ryan. Can strongly recommend the book. Um, it's going to be a good little foundation for us as we roll into the World Cup, which is 
is now. We're talking about the next week. It's perfectly time to take us into World Cup as we kick off over the next few weeks. We'll be talking more soccer. So that has been two hours, guys. We had the whole team in here for the first half, me and Adi in for the second. We want to thank you for listening on behalf of that whole team. Also, on behalf of Maddie Datz, the producer around here, the boss around here, on behalf of Dion Simpkins, the associate producer and longtime vital member of the Wharton Moneyball team. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.